This is an Ercasia special episode, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. and welcome to another edition of Ergasia Special. My name is Brendan Byrne, and I have the pleasure of being your host. How does a life of faith connect to the world of work? How does one's experience of and formation within a faith tradition impact upon one's understanding of the place of work in human life and the types of work one pursues throughout life? How do we reconcile the understanding of human reality as we receive it from our faith tradition with the reality as projected by the world of work in the secular sense? Recently, I had the good fortune to have a conversation with Chris Hughes, an educator who works for the Australian Council of Trade Unions. As Chris explains, he was born into what he describes as a culturally Catholic family but now strongly identifies with the British Quaker tradition. I recently sat down with Chris to discuss his faith background and how it informs his understanding of the world of work. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Ergasia Special 2.1, Conversation with a Quaker, Part 1. Thanks, Chris, for agreeing to to talk to me. Um, Really appreciate it. Um, First up, I was wondering if you could give a little background about yourself in terms of um, where you are employed currently, what your job is involved, and how did you come into this work? Okay, right. So I'm currently working for the Australian Council of Trade Unions in their organising centre. And the organising centre is pretty much the educational department within the ACTU. So what we do is provide um, educational training for um, unions that either A, don't have their own internal capacity to deliver their training, or B, specialist areas within training. And each of us are both generalists and specialists. So in my case, I deliver uh, delegates training for for workplace reps. Uh, We also do some organising training around bargaining and negotiations, and I also do work health and safety, mm-hmm. so OHS. So I also, we also deliver all the HSI training for delegates or organisers and things like that, as well as the, the qualifications. So it's really that type of providing educational services for unions. Now prior, and that's probably been a history, because prior to working here, I was a National Education Officer for the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union for right. quite a few years. Yep. And before that, uh, mostly um, I was a recruitment officer for about nine months for the AMW in the early mid-90s. And prior to that, I was, I was a workplace delegate. Yeah. So my history is pretty much active delegates and HSI roles 
within companies, and then I went, and then in '96 I moved into the union movement as a recruitment officer, yeah. and then I moved into adult education. And I've been doing that pretty much ever yeah. since. Yeah. So, for you, where did the the link between education and workplace activism sort of come together? Well, I, th- I think I just fell into it, to be mm-hmm. honest. Mm-hmm. I think um, from the very beginning I actually understood that to be, a, to be an activist you actually need to have the skills and knowledge mm-hmm. to do so. And I think I found that um, that aspect of it I actually quite enjoyed. And mm-hmm. it was actually a little bit of tension when I first started in the sense that I was used to being the delegate or the organiser at the workplace. I was used to engaging in the, that conversation at the workplace level and feeling like, well, I had skin in the game, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Well, what I found mm-hmm. is when I actually moved out of that role, even in recruitment and then into education, I found it difficult then to get that sense of that you were asking people to make choices and to put, put, um, put themselves in line, but you weren't actually actively involved in the outcome. So yeah. I struggled a little bit for a while on that, but then I realised that, well, no, really the role is to provide people with options and then those people will choose to take those options or not. Yeah, yeah. But it's something I probably fell into rather than a deliberate um, thought-out process. Okay. So can you give us a a little background about um, your relationship with faith? What kind of faith environment did you grow up in? Where are you now and how did you come to your your present circumstances? Okay, so... um, I was born into a family that were culturally Catholic, mm. lapsed Catholics to a certain extent. My father was a, uh, Irish Catholic descent born in Liverpool in England, and my mother was a, from Protestant descent born in Liverpool in England. But, uh, because of the, but because they were Irish Catholics, there was a very cultural concept about the role of Catholicism in relation to the British state. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so, so a lot of the times it was that working class Catholic process of, of, of um, looking at the, the attitudes of, of equity and fairness and that processes and that the, um, the trade union movement was very prominent at that. So I come from a long line of trade unionists mm. Mm. and also uh, that were predominantly Catholic by birth and persuasion Mm -hmm. and I uh, was very keen on the Catholic Church and I was very and I was pretty much growing up in the the 80s so I was very keen on and and was very drawn to um, liberation theology particularly in Latin America and I could saw that concept of the gospel and and to a certain extent Genesis continuing that's an ongoing process it wasn't finished in seven days but it's actually ongoing so that spoke to my to my views on the world about um, equity, about justice, about the need to, to, for embracing those things and actually um, to a certain extent bringing the kingdom of God to earth now rather mm. than worrying about what happens mm. later. The problem and I think the Catholic Church in its sense is broad enough to allow that type of pursuit, but I then found some of the doctrinarial elements of it a bit difficult to accept. Mm. So in many ways, but I was uh, hap- I was happy with it. Now, even today, I still have a tendency to be probably once a Catholic, always a Catholic. There's an aspects of Catholicism that that's always there. But I would say that I was 
not a practicing Catholic as such, probably since my mid-twenties or so. But then I actually got involved with um, Quakers, the Religious Society of France. And Quakerism gave me that the theological basis for my faith to actually accept that type of process. So within the, the Quaker tradition, it's much more aligned to um, personal experiences. They don't have a great deal of issues about um, theology or doctrinarianism or a particular catechism. Mm or liturgy, mm. uh, their belief is that it's a, it's a personal relationship between the divine and the individual, and some will use Christ-nocentric language and some of them won't. Yeah. But the idea there is a divine and there is something that you can have a personal relationship is very strong, and also their, their testimonies on equity and peace and simplicity fell in line pretty much with my own um, uh, ethical and mm. moral views. So mm. there was an alignment within mm. that process. Mm. Uh, so that interests me. So, so really, it's been a progression. So there's always. So I've never been an, an atheist or an agnostic. I've mm. always had a sense of mm. the divine presence. Mm. How that's manifested itself has evolved over the years, as I've, I've talked about it. And what I find with uh, the Quaker tradition, it can handle that type of process. Yeah. And that um, it's quite interesting. You know, they say, well, what happens when you're dead? They don't know. Mm. It's very much an experiential faith, so we mm. don't know what happens, so we don't really take too much notice about that. But what we do know yes. is that there are there's suffering at work here, and that we should be trying to align ourselves to actually bringing the, the, the principles of the gospel mm. in the here and now. Yes. And, and to a certain extent, that fits in very well with trade unionism. Mm. Well, my perception of it, certainly, is that I was drawn to trade unionism because of its belief in equity, it's belief in inclusiveness, it's defending of, of people who can't speak for themselves. So all those elements tied in particularly well. Yeah. Yeah. So for you, uh, is the, the, the gospel um, and, and the, the good news uh, of the kingdom a matter of uh, less about whether or not we purchase our ticket to heaven through <laughs> a kind of personal piety in as much as that thing about whatever you do to the least. Well, I think, I, I think, the, I think the view of certainly my tradition of Quakerism, which is the old British non-programmed sense, which mm. is not less... Um, uh, well, actually, there was an evangelical aspect of it too, I think. Uh, I think the issue is, is that uh, initially Quakers saw them, saw them as being um, bringing the way back of the early church mm. and moving away from hypothesis and basically bringing in that, that concept of, well, um, we're actually called upon to act now. Yes. In this world at this time, yes. in bringing in, in manifesting the kingdom here and on earth, yes. and that's really what we should be called to do, rather than some type of piety or some type of processes for the for the year after. And I, I would say there's quite a few Quakers, I amongst them. Mm. I have no idea what happens yes. when I die. Yes. I have no perception of uh, heaven. In fact, I'm probably more skeptical than not. Mm. But what drives my faith? Is that concept of the kingdom now and the gospel now? The, yes. You know the the bad the attitudes. The, yes. The, yes. Um, that's the key issue, yes. and that's the one that that attracts me and keeps me within that faith community. Yes. 
So within that, that emphasis on the gospel now, the kingdom now, where do you draw the distinction between justice and equity on the one hand and merely providing charity on the other? That's a very good question. And I think, I think it's a matter of um, thinking about where is my ego in something and where is actually we are called to be. Mm. And I think one of the things that Quakers are very cautious of is our, of our ability to actually try and discern uh, the, the, the promptings of God and how that's done and trying to work out which, which are promptings of the divine and which are my own ego prompting. And so we have processes where if what we would call a concern, so if somebody has a, a particular concern within a, a particular area, what we would normally do is take that to the meeting and then the meeting would then discern whether they think that, yes, this is an actual prompting of God and the divine and you are being called to do it and then they would support you in it or whether they would say, well, we don't think that's the case. We don't. We think there may be something to do more with your ego involved in it. So in many ways, it's about um, people are prompted to do things in their life, but to have that um, tested yes. by their faith community to say, well, yes, we think that's right, or no, we don't. And if we do think it's right, that we would actually support you in that process. And it doesn't necessarily mean whether they, will, they think it's the right thing to do or not. It's not discerning whether they think it's right, but the, whether they think it's a prompting for you. Mm. And I think that makes a difference. And I think that's quite different from a lot of other Orthodox Christian churches about that process. So I think mm. not having a liturgy or not having a particular doctrine mm. frees that up. But then how do you prevent them people going off and doing their own things or having some mechanism to try and work out whether you're on the right path or not? And yeah. I think that's... The process that Quakers have come up with, and I've, my own experience is that it, it has worked very, very well. Mm -hmm. So then given the justice imperative, the equity imperative, the human dignity imperative, what challenges for you in terms of your faith understanding, in terms of how that works itself out in your daily life? What challenges and problems are you, for you opposed by the fact that the industrial relations system and even even modernity's construction of, of waged labour mm. is, is a very adversarial one? So how then do you recognise Christ, as it were, in your adversaries, in HR managers, executives, corporate um, owners, etc., who are often, you know, in this adversarial system, quote-unquote, the enemy. Mm. How, how does that play out for you? Well, I think it, it, it's evolved over the years. Now, I'm, certainly in my youth, I'd be much more black and white, much more mm. right and wrong mm. um, process. And I, and, I, and I think there's elements of orthodox Christian doctrine that would be on that, that, that wavelength. Um, but I think the one thing with Quakerism, and also if you look at, I've been influenced a lot by the non-violence things of, mm. of King and also Gandhi, mm. and it's actually, it's not about winning. We're not there to win, we're there to, to convert. Mm. But also there's a very good um, Quaker thing that, the uh, query that says, 
have you considered that you might be wrong? So the concept that there is an absolute truth mm. and you have it mm. is something that is rather counterproductive to the, to the way that our faith operates. Mm. Uh, and it's, so, so it's an argument is, is that yeah, I, when I sit across a meeting, I don't see that. A lot of the time I see that person is in pain or that person has a perceptual way of looking at the world and that it makes sense to them. Mm. What I hope to do is actually to try and, uh, through education and in inclusive and, and opening up their minds and getting them to conceive the world differently, mm. that we could actually come to a conclusion where they see mm. that um, we can shift that to a much more equitable view of the world. Yeah. But there may be occasions, and it, it has happened, where they've shifted me, that I've mm. accepted, okay, yeah, I haven't considered that, that's actually a very valid point, and I think there's elements of that. The other thing too is I've, I've, I've never been a true believer within the trade union movement. I see it as a vehicle mm. to emancipation, not an end in itself. And mm. I think that makes, can be quite different because the cult of the unionism about barracking for your team and your team right or wrong yes. is not a context that I work in. So yes. in many ways the union movement is a vehicle for creating equity and processes. And if I stopped working for the union movement tomorrow, it wouldn't make any difference because my attachment is not to it as, as, a, as a thing in itself, yes. but as a vehicle to somewhere else. And a lot of that is because I've had extremely, have had quite a lot of um, frustrations and difficulties with the bioccracy of the union movement and with, it, with a lot of its values, which I think are quite contrary yes. in, in many ways to, to my, my uh, theological or faith or, or, yes. or values. Yes. That that um, issue of ends and means is one that I have encountered in the union movement, in my own experience of it, um, within the corporate sector when I worked within it, and within the church. It's, I'm, I'm coming increasingly to the view that that is the core issue that, that often um, creates injustice, creates human distress, and creates adversarial environments. Is, is that a view that, that you yourself experience? Oh, I think, that's, I think that's true. And I think one of the fundamental um, testimonies of, of Quakerism is that there is that of God in everybody. Mm. There's a divine spark in everybody mm. and that we need to accept that. So even the most... Um, person we have the greatest difficulty with, or we think is beyond, you know, acts in ways that are totally contradictory to the way we view the world. There is an element that there is a capacity within them to change. There's mm. a capacity within them to um, experience a shift in the way they do things. Mm. But it's also, I think, uh, much more complex than that because Quakerism would also accept the fact that people may choose to do bad things. Mm. People may choose to do things that are destructive and hurtful. Mm. But when, when that happens, our job is to, is, is if we can't convert the person, we must minimise their capacity to hurt others. Mm. So the argument is, is when we use the prison system or when we use incarceration, it's not to punish, mm. but it's actually to protect. Mm. Mm. And I think that, that's quite, quite a different process. And I think once again, it's, it's that, that idea is, is that the, the idea is to engage with the other person and get that person to see the humanity or the divine in each of us, to see that with them. And we have had very 
big shifts and changes in behaviours when we acknowledge the other's needs, we acknowledge the way they see the world, we mm. acknowledge that they are not evil, mm. uh, but they have a capacity for good and we want to engage with them. Mm. And I think that's worked and probably one of the major areas of one of the things that I think we have a burden on within Quakerism is we've got such a, um, a good rap and we're known internationally as, as peacemakers and people that have genuinely come in and don't have sides. Mm. And we've worked well, well in actually achieving that process. Mm. So, you know, there have been cases, particularly with international conflicts, and there's been Quakers involved in pieces who have said, you know, it's actually quite difficult to sit across the, across the table from a known war criminal. Yes. But once again, is that war criminal needs to be engaged with if we're going to change anything. Yes, yes. Well, well that, that's the, the confronting reality of when we talk about the unconditional love of God. Mm that it actually applies to the other and not just to ourselves. Yeah, and I don't, and I don't think it's, it's, it's uh, Pollyanna. I think mm. it, it is a, a belief that... Um, I think, yeah, the human beings... Have, I think a lot of Indigenous cultures have the same thing, that, you know, whether you're a good person or a bad person, well, you know, which wolf do you feed? And mm. I think that's very much the process here, is that um, I think that the means create the end. So the concept of all the means, you know, the means justify the end, I think, is wrong. And I think you're absolutely right. That's led to a great deal of pain and conflict. Mm. I think once we realise that the means is the end, mm. that how we start is how we're going to finish. Mm. And that that's the, the main issue. And if it's about inclusiveness, if it's about um, accepting people where they're at, if it's about working with people to shift, and not about judging, but actually assisting, then I think if we start out that way, then we're going to get the, the outcome we, we, we envisage. Yep. 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 You've actually anticipated a, a couple of questions already, which is great. Um, so, so, you know, what, what, what is the relationship then between um, your faith uh, and your subsequent relationship to faith and the work you do now and the values you hold? How does all of that mesh together? Well, I think it, I think it all meshes to, together in that um, I see my vocational life, and my, my work life, my paid work, um, is mostly, not always, but, but mostly consistent with, with my faith my faith community. So that, that helps a great deal. Mm. So there's an alignment and I can see that I have the opportunity to be able to practice my faith and practice the, my values and ethics within the, the workplace that I'm working. Mm. But that's always been the case. I've mm. never chosen a, 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 a vocation of work that would be contradictory to my faith. So, that, you know, so the, the work and my secular life has to be consistent with my spiritual life. It's not the other way around. Yeah, yeah. What about those parts that are less consistent? Well, I think that one of the less consistent is actually having a uh, being quite strong and quite clear about what is acceptable and not acceptable, and it's probably one of the main reasons why I neither seek nor have thrusted upon me a career within the trade union movement. So the argument is, is um, I'm not particularly ambitious. I'm not particularly interested in in the leadership position, and I have. And what I have noticed over the many years that I'm in is one when people do, in any organisation or any bureaucracy, 
uh, once people start to take leadership roles, there's more there's more options for them mm. than to be given processes that may be uncomfortable with their personal things, but choose to do it because of the good of the, the organisation or things like that. So I think the fact, once again, because I'm not seeking a career in the trade union or I don't, that's not my God, mm -hmm. yep. then there's, there, there, it's, I find it a lot easier in those cases to say no. Yes. Do you think that, that and, and I, I absolutely um, um, resonate completely with what you've just said. Um, do you think that, that in, in, in many respects, the, the union movement um, is a classic example of, of where means and ends have become confused and the, the spirit, the ethic of trade unionism has become hitched to a political culture that uh, does not necessarily serve the the purposes and the ends mm. for which trade unionism was established and ostensibly continues to exist. Oh yeah, no, I, I, I would, I definitely feel that way, and um, I would say that it is initially when it was actually didn't have the structure of the bureaucracies or the um, buying that it was much easier. I, I, my view with the trade union movement since I've probably become fairly active within it in the early 80s, is that it's becoming less democratic, mm. uh, less geared towards um, its proposed outcomes. Mm. And I think in many ways the, the actual uh, decrease or influence within uh, a, a, an alternative to the capitalist mm. system has made a difference. I, mm. think, I think there are still people within the trade union movement that would have a socialist indications or a concept of restructuring our society more fairly. Uh, but I don't know whether the current leadership with the trade union would perceive it that way. I, I think we've, like many organisations and within our political parties too, I think what's happened is we've, we've generated a career of careerists yes. who, whose purpose is to actually just... Um, have their own outcomes and mm. and attempt to justify that by saying, well, what's good for me is, is mm. good for the movement or good for workers. And I think a lot of the times what happens, particularly with trade union leaders, is that you go away from your core constituents and you end up spending most of your time dealing with employees or dealing with politicians. And I think it's a case of actually um, becoming the group that you'll work with, so you know the old analogy of if you lie down with dogs, you get fleas, or, or if you know if you associate with lepers, you develop a limb. Yeah. I think that type of pressure and that type of being in that type of more, those are the people, the cohorts we spend most of the times in. So it's finding it's very easy then to become embedded with that process and then started to think about well, I deserve more, I deserve the status, I deserve the money, yeah. I've earned my dues, I need something, and I think that's. Yeah, and if you look at history, it's so many times where you have people get frustrated and feel that union leaders have sold them out. Mm. It's because I think a lot of the times while people start out feeling very good, mm. it's very difficult not to be persuaded mm. or not to fall into the, mm. the, to the trappings yes. and the status yes. uh, that our society provides people. Yes. 
So I think effective people are always going to be challenged by being co-opted. Yes, yes, yes. And, and I, I think there's an analogy there with politics. People go in with, with the best of intentions and become encultured. Yeah, I think, yeah, in becoming cultured, I think yeah, they're very much, and I think, you know, the Bible and the Gospels talk about that process. As, you know, of, you know if, um, I see it as an analogy rather than an actual factual process, but yes. that's the concept of, of, of the devil saying to, to Christ, well, you can have everything. Yes, yes, yes. This is all for you. All you need to do is say yes. And I think yes. that that is a that, that type of temptation is given to everybody. Yes. The level of the temptation may differ, but I think everybody at some stage is always there's that temptation to go along with the norm, mm. the temptation to be rewarded for what society and the secular state says this is what your this is what success means. Yes, yes. So I think there's always that that, that pressure on people and some people come under more pressure than others because of the nature of the work they do. Yes, and I suspect that within particularly the mainstream mm. churches, but I think you also see it particularly in, in a lot of the Pentecostal churches, the, the temptation to adopt the paradigms mm. of the surrounding culture, to adopt or to try and access the... Um, forms of authority and legitimacy that the wider culture deems to be legitimate. We have our Pharisees today. Yeah, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed, indeed. And, and, and I think that is, that is a, con, a concern for, for quite a few um, people who believe in the way of Christ mm. in, in, that, in that sense of actually finding it difficult to understand those of us who, have, who particularly in the years they say have adopted that type of um, I think it's, it's an element within the to a certain extent in that Calvinist or Protestant tradition of basically saying if you're a good Christian God will reward you on yes. earth yes. with money and status yes. and therefore that type of um, prosperity gospel yes. that yes. the Christian that certain elements within the Christian church go, I think is a bit uncomfortable and certainly doesn't resonate with me yes. and I think that's quite contrary to, to the Actual teachings of, of the gospel, because I, you know, I don't think the gospel is a nice idea. I think it's actually a way of yes. living one's life, yes. or at least trying to do that. Yes. And, I, and I think that a lot of that, a lot of those political Christians, and that's the other thing I think too, is when we're talking about fundamental, fundamental fundamentalism or political Christianity, that concerns me too, particularly in the U.S., mm. uh, where there's an alignment of. of uh, political secular gains which is actually being covered by a concept of well as a Christian I think this and this. Yes. Yes. So I don't think it's only other I think there's I don't think it's only just Christians and Buddhists and Hindus that actually have a political that use who who use faith as a political tool. I think yes. we also have that within our own faith community. Yes. yes. And it's there that we'll leave the conversation for the moment. You get the feeling from talking to Chris that one of the reasons why there may be unease within institutions about individuals who hold a religious faith 
is precisely because that faith provides a perspective that enables uncomfortable truths to be told about the institution in question. This applies not just within the trade union movement, but within corporations, and indeed within the church itself. When we continue this conversation, we'll examine some of the ways in which this critique occurs, and also some of the ways in which religion can be used as a blind for political agendas. But for now, that's all. I would like to thank my colleague and friend Mary Doyle for making the interview with Chris possible. In the meantime, I hope to have the pleasure of your company in future. For more information or to leave feedback, visit the website at www.erdegarcia.podbean.com. I'm your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. This has been an Ergasia special episode. For more information, go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.